0: Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly
1: profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have a very special guest in Mr. Corey Harrelson, a dedicated mobile home park operator and the visionary founder of Freedom Investing Group. Before we dive in, I wanna ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds to head over to wherever you listen to this podcast and give me a rating of five stars? This helps us get more listeners and it means the absolute world to me. Thank you so much for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Leaving behind an 18-year career as a structural engineer, Corey took the leap into mobile home park ownership and now has a portfolio worth over $18 million across 12 communities. And he has been through five exits. His reach of his mobile home park portfolio extends from Idaho all the way to Ohio, with a focus now on the Bourbon Triangle, as he puts it, in the markets of Cincinnati, Lexington, and Louisville. He's currently under a contract on a park in Kentucky. And since July of 2023, Corey has dedicated himself to growing his mobile home park and RV syndication business, driven by a passion for financial freedom and helping others achieve it through mobile home park investing. Welcome to the show, Corey. I am super excited to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you mind starting out by telling us a little about your story and how in the world you went from being a structural engineer to investing in mobile home parks?
0: Sure thing. Yeah. I, I was doing like a lot of people did. I kind of did what my parents told me to do. Right. I went to, went to college and got a job and got married and had a kid. And I went on, I had some pretty good adventures before that, but at some point my career kind of ballooned and I found myself with a young kid working 60 to 80 hour weeks and just not really being able to contemplate how I was going to continue to do that until I was 65, like everyone said you're supposed to do. And there was one particular week where when my oldest son, he was my only son at the time, was two years old. There was a week where I just didn't see him at all awake. I would leave in the morning before he would wake up. I'd get home in the evening after he went to sleep. I mean, seven days, it was It was just kind of bonkers. And I loved engineering. Like it's, it's a really interesting thing, but I didn't love it more than my, my kid, right. And my wife. So, oh, so yeah, I had kind of this freak out where it was a Sunday and I had been working all day there. And I was like, I hadn't seen him awake in a week. I was like, gosh, dang it. I'm going to go put my kid to bed. So I, I left work early on a Sunday at five 30 and got home in time to actually give my kid a bath and put him to bed. But when I went to take him away from my wife to go give him his bath, he looked at me like I was a stranger. and started freaking out and crying. Didn't want to leave mom and it was pretty terrible. I kind of had a a realization at that moment. I needed to do something different. I didn't know what that was. I kind of, I did a couple things. Somebody gave me, it's the same book. Everybody talks about, right? Rich dad, poor dad. And you know, I read rich dad, poor dad, and my mind kind of exploded like, Oh my gosh, there's assets that pay you. (laughs) Um, well, I don't know why I had to wait till I was 35 years old and read that book to figure that out. It's not actually that complicated, but I wish I would have learned that in school. But yeah, so I, I read Rich Dad ad and said, I'm going to go invest in real estate. Gosh, darn it. I'm going to do this. And so we didn't have, we were not good savers up until that point. That was in 2015. We were not good savers up until that point. We we didn't get in a bunch of debt or anything, but we, you know, I, I like to climb and ski. And, you know, if we had extra money, I was buying climbing gear and that kind of thing. And so, but we did have a little bit of money and we had some home equity, so I, I managed to figure out how to use a HELOC, and I was originally going to go do a duplex, threeplex, fourplex was was what I was going to do. I went out to bigger pockets and then just started nerding out, learning everything I could about real estate. And I figured out how to analyze deals. And I'm an engineer, so I built a spreadsheet, built my pro forma spreadsheet, and figured out what all went in there, and started analyzing deals. And even back in 2015, I had a really hard time. Once I started looking at them, it was like, man, these are barely going to cover the mortgage with the rent. And I know I could have, I could have, you know, hustled and driven for dollars, and you know, sent a bunch of mailers. And I, I knew I could have found good deals in the duplex, in the in the kind of plex space. But I, I was getting a little discouraged, and I stumbled across a mobile home park for sale on Craigslist, a little nine-unit one. I, I didn't end up buying it, but but I, I plugged that into my pro forma spreadsheet, and the numbers looked much better. And so I was yeah. like, oh, I, uh, what is this mobile home park thing? So I started doing what I always do. And I I dove in and I learned everything I could. I got a bunch of Frank Rolfe material back then and learned learned about tenant-owned homes and park-owned homes and cap rates and all of that. But I was still pretty scared because it's a mobile home park. And what did I know about mobile home parks? So I, I had a really good friend of mine, Matt, he was the only person I knew at the time who invested in real estate. He was a, he's a residential real estate agent, but he had rental properties and things. So I, I took him out for a beer and I said, Matt, I'm thinking of doing something crazy and I need you to talk me out of it. And I need you to tell me why I'm thinking of buying a mobile home park. He, (laughs) he, he looks at me and goes, no, I know guys who own mobile home parks, they're cash cows. Um, So he ended up helping me quite a bit as far as how to track down a deal. So we sent a bunch of mailers out. And at the time they weren't, popular yet. That was still kind of right at the tail end of them being a secret. And so, yeah, we just sent a bunch of mailers out and a whole bunch of people responded and we had a bunch of deals on the table to choose from. And, um, I ended up buying my first park in 2016. It was a little 12 unit deal
1: in garden city, Idaho, garden city, Idaho. Maybe tell us about that. Cause you're based in Boise, right? Correct. Yes. This is 10 minute bike ride from my house Oh,
0: awesome! to this. Yeah. And so garden city is a kind of a neat little mm-hmm. niche in Idaho and that it's, it's a beautiful area surrounding it. And it's right on the river, right on the green belt and there's breweries and wineries, but there's just all these really, really old rundown, uh, rundown properties around there. So it was, it was right in kind of the path of progress, if you will. And that everything, all the, it was just that area that was, it was like, mm-hmm. this is yeah. way too nice I've of a location coming. for things to be. Yes, ex- exactly. So it was a good, a good spot to buy at the time. And yeah, it was 12, 12 units, 12 units. Okay. 12 units, all all tenant owned. There was one unit, there was 11 really good tenants and one, one that we knew was going to be an issue. He was high as a kite when I went to walk the, walk the property in due diligence and (laughs) his, the inside of his home was like all the other homes were okay, but this, this one home was just in really bad shape. He had yeah, He had just put like cardboard up on the ceilings and st- it was, it was really bad. And so he did us a favor right out of the gate and stopped paying. So we, Ugh. we got rid of him and replaced the home with a nicer one and filled it with a sweet little old lady who had just gotten divorced. And yeah, it was, ended up being a really good deal. We built back some water and yeah, it was really good. And when, it took a little bit, a little bit of doing for the first year and then was kind of just mailbox money for several years after that. So that was my That's first, so awesome first you mobile home part in that one. I don't. I sold that. I did a cash out refi on that and bought a park in 2020. And then I sold it and refinanced a little over a year after that or sold it in 1031. Sorry. I kind of wish I did, but
1: <laughs> uh, it's us, in a great spot. Yeah. Tell yeah. us about, you know, how you got educated prior to buying that 12 unit. I know you mentioned some, some bigger pockets and Frank Rolf stuff, but yeah. What, did you go to the boot camp? You know, what type of stuff did you do to, you know, for due diligence and things like that?
0: So what I did, I would do it different I would have gone to the boot camp sooner if I had it to do over again, but I got all of the free material they, they had at the time. I don't know if it's still available. They had a bunch of really good free material on, oh, on the bigger pockets yeah. forum, but also on the MHU, the Frank Ralph mm-hmm. mobile home university site. So I ended up just getting that and then kind of figuring out based, piecing that together with the forums and coming up with a due diligence list. And um, you can learn a lot for free. In hindsight, that deal went really well. I had one other deal that didn't didn't go as great. And I think I would have approached it differently had I taken the MHU bootcamp sooner. So yeah, the, the bootcamp was great. I did the bootcamp in January of 21. Um, I finally went and did that when we were going to start. At some point I, I had used up all my capital and was, was thought I was done. And then I had some friends and family come and say, Hey, why don't you take our money and do this too? And uh, this is really cool what you're doing. And so I I, I figured I, I I had five years of experience at that point, but I wanted to make sure I was leaving no stone unturned. So I, I
1: went back and took the bootcamp five years in. Smart. Um, Smart. No, yeah. that's awesome. I mean, on those first couple, yeah. Like, did you make any mistakes? Would you, what would you do differently? You know, on those first couple, like what you're mentioning, did you buy so, any, like, private utilities or anything like that? Or were they all public?
0: so the one that I made a mistake on so the first one the first deal was city water city sewer that 12 unit one it was actually everyone says your first deal you you lose on and then you learn all the lessons I wish I had lost on that one that one went just too clean the deal that I I cash out refied into first I bought that one then I bought a few other small ones in Garden City one over in Pocatello and then I I at one point I sold a few of those and, and refied the the first deal and I bought a 51 lot park in Michigan. That was like, oh, I'm going to scale up. I did this. I bought this 51 lot park. That was in Michigan. That one had a wastewater treatment plant which rightfully worried me going in so I did everything I could to learn all about the due diligence you would do on those. I talked to other people who'd invested in them I once again I, I found all the material I could. I, I posted and got good responses on the bigger pocket forums I I checked with this, the the local, the state, the federal EPA people everything was in compliance they had a good operator. everything seemed to be I I, I checked all the boxes that I think I should have checked um but I made, I made one mistake and it was a small mistake, but a big mistake I took when I was insuring it, I took the appraiser's word for the value of the replacement cost, um, of the wastewater treatment plant. That was, that was the, the big mistake I should have. For something like that, in hindsight, if I was going to do this again, I would go I would go talk to an actual contractor and a, and a manufacturer called Legacy Environmental or somebody that makes these and get the actual price because that ended up being off by a factor of 10. Oh, um, and we had, everything was fine with the operations of the plant. And a lot of these plants are outdoors and they're not flammable, so that's fine. Mm. This one happened to be housed in a building. It had a um, a, a building that was housing it. The building had a fire. Oh, geez. And it totaled the plant.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah. So that was rough. That was a big, big mistake. So that that, that one thing right there, if I had just gotten the insurance right, then it would have just been a headache. But so it got totaled and it was very expensive to replace it. We did have some insurance and I was pretty worried for a minute there. I mean, thank goodness it was it was just my park and I hadn't, you know, this wasn't someone that I had had other money in. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I, I didn't know what, you know, I, I was, I was calling everybody I knew trying to figure out what to do. And the best advice I got was from my friend Blake, who was like, you just got to call the bank and just level with them. Like, cause it was the issue was, it was the temporary, the, it was the pumping of the sewage while the thing was being replaced, ended up costing almost as much as the replacement. Yeah, it was 50 grand a month. Um, Oh my goodness on a park with like the gross income was 300 grand for the year. So it was, it wouldn't work. So the insurance covered that for a few months, that pumping, but, um, so I had just a few months to figure it out. But so the, Fortunately, I had done the other things right. I had built back water filled vacancies I, I boosted the NOI way up and I had a little bit of market wins at my back at the time too. so we I had some pretty good equity in the property so the the bank was great to work with. Yes yeah yes yeah John John Meternak was was the the lender on that one he was awesome to work with. and so they ended up we ended up doing like a cash out refinance in the middle of it to fund basically to fund the gap between I put my whole, I put a whole bunch of cash in from, I had, you know, I had cash savings and everything. So I had my reserves plus that, plus the insurance. We, we ended up doing the, the whole replacement of the wastewater treatment plant. Um, So we replaced the whole thing. um, And that would have been, I would have, If if I didn't have to, if I got the insurance right and done everything else the same, I would have tripled my money in two years on that deal.
1: But instead I I ended up losing a bit. The listeners, um, what a great takeaway. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you're an operator out there, definitely get like the actual replacement costs instead of taking the appraiser's, you know, valuation. That's a great takeaway. So,
0: right. And if it's, if it's some building, that's what appraisers are there for, right? They're pretty good at it, but they may not know. I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming they just, they're not a wastewater treatment plant expert. So, yeah. So that's the takeaway on that one. It ended up, I I would say that it ended up, I'm, I'm kind of just trying to think of it as a, like a college education and infrastructure replacement, I guess. Uh, And we did end up finding another deal based off of that, that I took that I I would not have had the courage to touch if, if I hadn't been through that. Um, So we found one in Illinois that had an owner who was in a similar situation to what I was in. They had a failing well water system that needed to be replaced and they didn't have the capital to replace it. So we were able, and I had just gone through this wastewater treatment plant thing. And it was like, well, I know what to do. And I come from a construction background. So it was, it was, um, you know, it's a totally different thing when you come in with the actual capital to do it and it's planned. But so we were able to get this, a really good price on it to start. And then we got a seller credit for the vast majority of the actual replacement. So we were able to cash out the seller who was in a pickle, kind of get him out of the pickle and come in and we did a $600,000 well system replacement at a community in Illinois. That's now it's got brand new infrastructure. And out of the 600, we got a $480,000. It was a $570,000 replacement. We got a $480,000 credit. So we were basically into it for 90 and now we've got brand new, wow, brand new Illinois yeah. EPA compliant well so system. True. And it's hundred percent tenant owned, like other than that infrastructure exactly. thing, it's just a super quiet cash flow, mailbox money park. So that's so good.
1: No, thank you for sharing this. I mean, I know we kind of went down a rabbit hole here, but like, you know, what would you say, Corey, are like the toughest hurdles that you've had to overcome in mobile home park investing? Like, like looking at it from like an all encompassing perspective. Mm. What's, what's the toughest hurdles? Is it, you know, utility system management? Is it operations? Is it, you know, finding good deals? What would you say? I think, everybody knows it's
0: hard to find good deals. I mean, it's certainly, there's a lot of work there that goes into finding good deals, but I think the operations is probably the biggest one that, that people, a lot of people will just say like, oh, it's tenant owned homes. And if the toilet yeah. leaks, it's not your toilet. And that's true. Um, but, <laughs> but you have a it, as long as
1: you're
0: <laughs> in that toilet, so you don't want <laughs> right. <it> to just, <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. It, that's that's true until, you, you know, and, until maybe you inherit one of those homes and have to have to refurb it and sell it. And you can, Make a profit on that, but it's it's the operations are a lot of a lot more work than I had thought going in as far as figuring those out. And so we've we've learned a lot. We've I feel like we've got some pretty good processes now. But that's been that took a long time to build.
1: I would say. Yeah. Tell us about your operations. You know, do you manage in house, and you know, do you have a team, and what does that look like?
0: Yeah, we do. So we have um, we do manage in house. I have a separate. Freedom Community Management is our separate entity that does the property management. So we have nice. We have a we have um, a couple of virtual employees who help manage kind of the global back office um, bookkeeping and supporting of on-site managers. Then we have onsite managers at every property as well. And those folks make a big difference as far as finding the right folks there is, is a is a key. Um and then any what tips? we do is any tips on finding good on-site managers? The best ones we've hired have been straight out of the Frank Birol boot camp of just going and figuring out who's got the nice home and the clean car and the nice yard and who actually looks like they care and yep. that, you know, they, they, they want to be motivated. They're going to be motivated to want to make the community better. That's what we've done. And that's, that's worked pretty well, The some of the inherited managers we've gotten have worked well and some of them have not, but when we've hired based on that criteria, just make a list of the, you know, the top 10% of the, who's got the nicest yards and talk to all of them. Um, we, the, the park we have down in Tucson, we did that and we talked to everybody and the guy that we, we ended up hiring, he, his, wife's grandpa was the one who had built the park and he, and then whoever they had sold it to had let it go down a little bit. And so he was, he, he offered to do the whole thing for free. He was like, I just want to see this place cleaned up. I'll do all of this for free. And we're like, you can't work for free. We're going to pay you because otherwise you're going to burn out. (laughs) But, but, uh, and he's still with us. He's he, and he's awesome. Like he's like that he's we've, we've cleaned that place up and it's, it's running like clockwork. So
1: a good onsite manager can make or break a deal. It, It would make it 10 times easier if you have a good manager that you can trust. So that's a good tip. Thank you. Tell us about, you know, your recent acquisitions kind of, I know you've, you've ballooned up now you have a a nice portfolio, you know, how have you guys pivoted around the higher interest rates? And I know you said you had a deal in Kentucky under contract. So yeah, maybe just kind of tell us about your portfolio now. Totally. So what we have done up until recently, we have
0: made relationships with several brokers we have really good relationships with that are sending us pocket listings. And so what we have done is we've chased the relationships instead of the region, It's been good in the sense that we've gotten a lot of good. We have a lot of good deals with us right now, and it's been good that it's let us see a lot of areas. I do think every time we end up in a new area, it's it's a lot of work, and so we're lately we've decided. So we've got we're in Cincinnati and soon to be the Lexington metros, and and I really like those areas compared to a lot of the other places. Like like the Illinois property is great, but the state of Illinois is not great to work with, and so we we found some areas that man the operations seem like really really good and we can use a lot of the same movers and installers between those three markets they're only an hour hour and a half apart so we're we're right now we're honing in on the what we're calling the bourbon triangle the right. Lexington Lexington Louisville Cincinnati's where we're we're currently targeting um great areas they're growing it's they're popular the Lexington where our deals in our contract right now is it's the housing supplies constrained because they're they're kind of anti-development. So there's not a lot of development, but there is a lot of demand. So where the rest of the country last year rents were down, the, the rents last year in Lexington were up over five percent still. Um, so it's it's a really strong area. And and it just seems like the the I've I've seen firsthand the red, the red states are just so much easier to work in, regardless yeah. of what your your politics are. No, totally.
1: Um, yeah. I own a park yeah. in Buffalo, New York, and then another <laughs> couple actually in Illinois and it's just amazing, you know, specifically we could talk about, you know, evictions, but there's other things too, right? Like just the regulation behind bringing in a home and, you know, filling it, you know, the the permitting process is like 10 times harder and longer and more expensive. Uh but yeah, I agree. The red states, you know, things just move a little bit faster and you're able to, you know, do business. So that's that's good. Is that where most of your deals come from though? Is is like pocket listings and those relationships with brokers?
0: So I certainly make a bunch of cold calls, but the most Traction we have had
1: is through the pocket listings with brokers. Yes. Um, That's awesome. That's great. Yes. Yeah. That's a good little lead source. You know, it's, it takes a lot of time to like build those relationships, but that's, that's great that you have a good, you know, stream of deals coming to you. Corey, how has your mobile home park investing strategy changed over your years in the business? You know, I know you said now you're kind of getting more geographic focused on the bourbon triangle, but is there anything else like size wise, your first deal was 12 units. Now, are you looking at bigger properties like the one in Michigan that was over 50 lots? You know, what, what's changed and why, if you don't mind?
0: Uh, yes. So we are looking at bigger lo- bigger parks, definitely. So our current metric, we're targeting 50 lots and bigger, unless it's right next door to one that we already owned. We'll go down below that a little bit. But okay. I have this theory that the 50 to 99 lot is kind of a sweet spot. The bigger parks... You just get so much more economy of scale. It's not really more work, but then you have more revenue to hire better people to execute the work. You can actually afford to have an onsite manager that can, you can actually afford to pay your onsite manager a decent wage. And so I think that's huge. The, I like the 50 to 99 lot size because I I would like bigger parks too, but a lot lot of the really, really big folks start, folks start looking at the 100 lot and up range. So I feel like that 50 to 99 kind of weeds out some of the really, really big, operators, but it's big enough that a lot of the first time buyers aren't able to get into that space. So that's, that's my, uh, my sweet spot there.
1: That's good. And yeah, what's the strategy? Is it value add? Is it more stabilized? Are you doing a lot of infill? You know, I know you said you, you sub metered, you know, that one park water and sewer, you know, what's the, what's the play, uh, for your, I, so, so
0: I think, and this is maybe a good a good comparison that I like to make sometimes too with apartments, I feel like the value add potential in mobile home parks is the best of any asset class because so many of them, they're all built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so many of them have just have these owners who've owned them for decades and haven't done anything. They haven't fixed potholes. They haven't filled vacancies. They have, they just, you know, they, they, I assume their loans are paid off and they've just whatever money's coming in is just cash flow. And so they're not really motivated to improve them. So in the apartment space where there's so many sophisticated, sophisticated sponsors out there, there's certainly value add deals there too, but I think they're a lot fewer and far between versus a lot of these parks just have so much value. So, for instance, this park in Lexington is in a wonderful location. It's it's right next to there. There literally there were bulldozers driving behind the the fence as we were as we were on site touring it, building a five hundred thousand dollar kind of McMansion neighborhood right behind wow. it. There's a middle school getting built across the street from it. The location's amazing. The infrastructure is direct build water sewer right to the residents. So the, best, the, the maintenance yeah. of the pipes, the none of that is on us. The water sewer bill. So the infrastructure is great. The bones are great. The location's great but it's ugly as sin. It's, it's like, this is way too nice of an area for this thing to be here. But if it's just aesthetics, we can fix that. So that's, what's exciting to me is there's a whole bunch of longtime residents in this thing that are living in this place. That's just not been kept up. The roads are crap. The, 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 the trees are all overgrown. There's, you know so so if we can come in and fix the roads and do fencing and signage and help some of the residents, especially up near the front, maybe paint their homes and do a program to help residents get skirting on their homes and enforce the you know make people clean up their yards and get rid of some junk, all of a sudden we're going to have a nice asset in a nice area and we're going to be able to fill it up. and then so so yeah, so I, I like the infill i like I like value add as long as it's priced so that we can afford to bring in the capital to do the value add if that makes sense um, sure.
1: Yeah. So, and then you handle that all in-house through your team. You have like project managers to do that, or are you doing it yourself?
0: Correct. Yeah, we have. So my partner, yes. Yeah, so my, my business partner, Thomas, who's my, also my brother-in-law, he okay. he runs a lot of the value add the value add stuff. And then we've got our team, our team will work with the onsite manager for the operations and automating rent collection and all of that. And then we actually started working somewhat recently with there's a consultant called Dynamic MH Solutions. They've got they've got decades and decades of of experience. So we work with them a, a lot on the particularly on like the home infill and inventory and they, they've got relationships to get good prices on a lot of homes and things. So they're um we've just started working with them, with a, them. F- a few months. I'm not ago.
1: familiar with them. Dynamic MH Solutions and will they handle infill and things like that? Like actual like from you know, manufacturers, or are you, they've helped them with used homes, what type of. They
0: can, so they can do both. They can do both. So they, they've got a mm-hmm. bunch of relationships with lenders. They've got relationships with some of the, the new home builders. So our plan is to kind of do a combination of newer used homes and new homes via the 21st mortgage cash program. And so, yeah, so they've got, they've got relationships with all of them and it's, it's almost like having a, they're, they're kind of like a fractional employee almost, but they've awesome. got tons and tons of experience. They've all been doing it for decades. So.
1: That's so awesome. and to circle back, you mentioned that like in mobile home parks, the value add is just so transparent there's just so many ways to add dollars to the NOI by just walking around because of the fragmented ownership and things like that and I think that's yeah. just so important, right because in apartments and storage and you know all these other asset classes that are you know uh, still attractive and you know and they they can work I think it's just a little bit harder, right it's a little more arbitrary it's a little more like you know, less clear, right? In mobile home park, it's like, hey, here's a 80 lot park, there's 10 vacant lots. Here's our plan, and here's how we're going to use the equity to fill those lots and increase the income. It's it's very black and white. Where, like in storage, for example, it's like, hey, we're gonna buy this facility, it's 92% occupied, and we're gonna revenue manage people up, you know, but we don't know how many people are gonna move out, but we're gonna revenue manage people up, and you know, we believe we'll be able to, you know, push NOI based off of that. It's just more you know, it's less concrete, I guess. Would you agree? Totally, and I I think part of the, another thing
0: I love about the mobile home parks versus self-storage and apartments is, because the rents are so far, I I I know like rent increases are a touchy subject, and we certainly try to we we try to bring people in at market and bring the existing residents over many many years. So I'm not someone who's going to come in and double everybody's rent overnight. I don't feel right about that. But but because the but we are going to get them there over some number of years, we're going to catch them up, and that's how we can afford to bring in the you capital to. to do yeah. all these improvements. Yeah. Um, but the 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 neat thing is, I I like to think of them like. A submarine under a storm. So the apartments are like the ship on top of the sea. And so, right now, a lot last year, a lot of people got into a lot of trouble with apartments because rents had been shooting up in the apartment side of things. But they are, by definition, the market rent. The apartment rents are the market rent. And so, if the market rent comes down, all of a sudden you've got syndications where people are projecting rent growth and they have to cut rents and you can be in big trouble. But with a mobile home park, the rents are so low. Like our most expensive park is around $500 a month in a market where the rents are $2,000 a month for yeah. apartments. So if the apartment rent drops, even by some big 10 or 15%, okay, apartments are $1,800. My $500 lot rent is still a bargain. And so if we've got residents at you know 200 and something, we're still gonna bring them, we're sticking to our business plan. So I I, I like that Um it, because it's affordable housing and it's it's so much it's it's actually affordable. It doesn't need section eight subsidies for people to afford it. People can actually afford it on on minimum wage salaries. And so that that's what's a, I feel good because we're providing housing that people actually need and we're trying to make it quality housing. and then b, people can actually afford to pay it. So we're not I, I don't feel like we're as impacted by the ups and the downs of the um of the housing market.
1: Yeah, not no, sure if that made sense. Feedback. But... Yeah. No, I I agree with you on that. You know, if you were going to be passively investing in another mobile home park operator, what would be like the major things that you would want to look at and study? And what would you want to do? I guess what, what's your advice for those passive investors that are listening?
0: Totally. Yeah. So there's there's three things I would look at. And I've actually got a free tool for one of those things. The first thing would be the sponsor. You know, do you trust this person? Do they have a track record? What has their performance been really like you're investing, if you're investing passively, you're, you're giving up control, which is good because then you don't have to do work and it also limits your liabilities. There's a lot of pros, but you really have to trust the person you're investing with, right? So I would say what you really want to meet and talk to them and understand who they are and what their background is and make sure it's not somebody that's just going to skip town with your money Um, and make sure that they, they have the capability to execute on their business plan. The the second thing I would look at is the financing. I would be just And I don't think this has happened as much in the mobile home park space as the apartments, but I'm just a fan of debt that's fixed for at least five years that a lot of people got in trouble with the interest rate, the interest rate spikes and everything recently. And so if if you've got commercial loans, you know, if you can get five or 10 year debt, I I feel like that's, that's really good. So that's one thing I would be cautious of is if there's, if there's some kind of variable rate debt, unless there's a reason for it, maybe if it's constructed, you're building something new or something, but, and then the third thing is that, and then finally you get to the deal itself. And so for the, for the deal itself, there's all kinds of weeds you can get into about what to look at. I actually, I actually made a, made a tool. Um, it uses, so Frank Rolf has his, uh, he, he popularized the ideal method of, of looking at a deal as far as what to look at. So that's infrastructure, density, economics, age of homes and location. So I, I created a tool where you can go and you can set it up with whatever your parameters are. And it's, it's meant to be if you don't want to do a full underwrite. So I use this every day just for a quick pass. It takes 15 minutes to set something up instead of eight hours to to do a full underwriting model. So it's kind of a quick pass to see, Hey, it's checking all these things. I've got color-coded cells for all of the different metrics. Like, is this a look, you know, all the different location metrics, uh, median income, population, um, all, all, all the metrics for all those things. So you can kind of get this real quick snapshot of, is everything green, or is there a bunch of yellows and reds? Is this something I even want to look at? And then, it, and then it runs through like it's it's not a full underwrite, but it runs through kind of a eighty percent the way there. Best guess underwrite as well, and it's pretty easy to use. So I use that to look at, to process a whole bunch of deals. But if if anybody wants that, I I've got that you know for I can share that for free as well if anybody wants it. And it's it's yeah. a, I think a good way to. To just just have something where you can you can actually make a buy box and put your you can write down what you want your targets to be and then objectively look at those in a pretty
1: visual easy way. That's awesome. Yeah, if you could send the link or whatnot, I'll make sure to put that in the in the show notes. That'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. You know, moving on from that, you know, what do you think the perfect mobile home park looks like? You know what what does that look like from your time since twenty sixteen when you th- you bought that first park, the twelve units in Garden City, Idaho, to now? You know what. What's the perfect park look like and why?
0: For me, the perfect park is in a great location, but with with some some form of value that needs to be added. I I like the value add stuff more than the stabilized investments just because you can provide a better return. And I feel like we're making places better for people to live. So it would be some kind of value add where it's either, that either means it's an ugly park that we're bringing back to life and making look nicer. It's got, it's got, empty pads that, Hey, that we need affordable housing. Let's go provide some more affordable housing. We're actually adding units by bringing homes in homes in and selling them or, or, you know, infrastructure like the one in Illinois, where we, we basically saved that community. If they didn't replace that well system, I don't, I I imagine they would have had to shut the community down. So, um, some kind of value where we're actually adding real value to a park in a great location. (laughs) Um, the, uh, is, is what I would say the look for me, the location is the biggest thing because it's, Man, it makes everything easier when there's there's a lot of demand for what you're providing.
1: Totally. Interest rates are, are pretty high right now. We're still getting quoted 7 7.5% interest rates on deals. You know, how are you guys pivoting around that? Are you doing anything special? You know, obviously, you're buying value-add deals that have room for, you know, rent growth and infill and things like that. But is there any magic sauce that, you know, maybe we could just, you know, be comfortable with? I don't think there's a magic
0: sauce. You've got to update your underwriting and just plan on. I mean, you got to pay less for the deal at the end of the day because yeah. you've got to. Uh, unless you're someone who's coming in with all cash and and you, but then then your returns aren't going to be as good. So I, I think you've just got to pay less for the deal. The deal can support less debt, and so it has been a challenge getting deals to pencil this last year because we, we've looked at a lot and offered on a lot and. There's just been a gap because everybody remembers what it would have been when interest rates were 3%, but the property can't support that debt now, so it just doesn't work. The one thing I have been trying and gone pretty close on a few is to get creative. If if, if you've got an owner who owns it with no or little debt, try to do an owner financing kind of scenario where if they could... Uh, we, I actually had a verbal commitment on one, and then he changed his mind. But um, if I was an owner, I, I what I would do, if I was an owner selling, and I owned the property outright, what I would do is offer a low interest seller finance loan for a decent term. Mm-hmm. So that you could sell for a higher price. Like if if the issue is just the cap, it's the, it's just the spread between the interest rate and the cap rate. And so if you can provide a lower interest rate for a long enough time, then you should be able to command a higher price for your property. So they're making a return right up front by selling the property for much more than they they could have sold it for. And, and then interest, in exchange, right? we're yeah. we're getting in on a on a long term loan on a long term loan with low interest rate that's going to cash flow for a really really long time. Then you know, I think there's a win-win there. Um, so that, that would be the, that,
1: that's one thing I'm, I'm, I'm trying. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great idea that we're using that as well. to get the seller to hold like a second, right? So there's a first position and then they're holding like a second to kind Mm -hmm. of help bridge some of the gaps. So that's a good, uh, a good way to look at it. So let's invert for a second here. How does a person fail with a mobile home park investment? Knowing what, you know, you know, how does a person fail?
0: I would say you fail by if by selling when the market is selling at the wrong time would be one major way to fail. So the, I think the defense for that is to buy parks that cash flow and that have value adds that you can you can really boost the value and the revenue to protect yourself and and taking longer term debt and taking longer term debt. I think one of the scary things I've seen a i have seen I have seen a lot of seller finance deals come in, but they they want a one or two year balloon on it and i think that's really scary i think that could lead you to overpaying for a property and then even if everything's going right and you're making your payments two years go by and you overpaid so you maybe can't refinance out and then then you lose the property to term default even if everything else went well that's scary so i i that's why i favor those longer longer term loans and then also looking in the underwriting it what happens can you can you refinance out if you know your noi takes a hit or the cap rates go
1: up yeah, so I I, I think um, well, financing is what you focus on mostly. Is hey, don't mess that part up. Number two in your three, right. don't mess up the financing because that could lose your capital.
0: Correct. Yes, and then obviously, like I like I said earlier, the don't don't ignore the infrastructure either. Especially if you have private infrastructure, um, make sure you get the insurance right, right from that.
1: Um, yeah, because you well, could do the all the I right due diligence like you did, and still you know have an issue because of the insurance piece. So that's. That's yep. a big, a big takeaway for listeners. So thank you for that. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest threat to mobile home park investing? I think just as it gets more popular,
0: I think oh, you can you can overpay if you're not being careful. I know where I'm at in Boise, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a commercial broker. I don't have any properties in Idaho anymore. I would love to be invested in my own home market, but I can't like it's not it's a game that I I don't really understand the rules to anymore. They're 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 still selling. At sub five caps, um, they're just people buying with negative leverage. So my, my my friend, he does apartments and mobile home parks are his two specialties. And he said the parks are selling at lower cap rates than the apartments right now because of their stable track record throughout all the turbulent times and recessions. I want cash flow, or I want to be able to know I can raise the value to get to cash flow. I I just don't understand. So so yeah, I I think the overpaying would be yeah some of these big groups that are buying things big at threat. three or four yeah. caps still.
1: Yeah, you can change a lot of things yeah. about the property itself, but you can't change the market and you can't change the price you paid, right? Like after you right. close, those are pretty locked in. So, yeah, good point there. Well, Corey, thank you so much, dude, for coming on the show. You've added a ton of value. If any of our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, you can find us at freedominvestinggroup.com.
0: And we've got that. You can get a link to that free resource there, too, or I'll, I'll send a link to it for the, the show notes, too. or. Um, you can, if you want to email me, it's C O R Y is my name at freedomcm.net, as in freedom community management. So thanks. Awesome. It's been fun.
1: Yeah. Anything else that we miss Corey or any other advice you'd like to give, you know, a passive investors that are looking at mobile home parks as an asset class. Yeah, just, I think it's great. I think it's kind of a double win. I mean, you've got this thing where you can build your
0: cash flow and your equity and you're also providing something that's there's a crisis right now in the country with affordable housing. And if if you start to operate in this mobile home park space, you see it when, when we have a, a lot come available. I mean, we get mobbed with people that need the homes and people, yeah. I mean, people that really, really need housing. And so it's, 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 it's a way to provide good quality, affordable housing and make a return. So it's a pretty cool, pretty cool
1: double win. So double win. I love that. Yeah. Well, Corey, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. That's it for today, folks. Reminder, please leave a review if you got value out of this show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks again for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.